Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help anybody out there that's thinking of starting a business. Equally, if you've started a business and are struggling, maybe you need a little bit of inspiration and knowledge. And we hope by interviewing some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and change makers, that you'll get the knowledge you need to become the person you want and turn your business into that dream company. I personally have started 17 companies from scratch and have invested in over 65 startups. When I sat down and analyzed how I did it, I discovered a secret. It was all luck. I'm here to tell you, in my opinion, without luck, it ain't gonna work. Each week, I will discuss with my guests this theory and see if luck is a skill as I feel it is. I hope you enjoy our episode this week. Welcome to this week's episode of the Good Luck Club podcast. My guest today is writer Adele Lim. She's best known for being the screenwriter for Crazy Rich Asians. Adele, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Do you mind starting off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Oh, wow. Uh, where to start? I um, am a... Uh, TV and screenwriter, um, living in Los Angeles, but I was born and grew up in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and, you know, really didn't get to the States until I was 19 for school. Um, I always wanted to be a writer, I think. I think I wanted to write from the time I could write, um, but, you know, growing up with um, conservative Chinese parents in Southeast Asia, the idea was, you know, um, you know, you can't possibly make a living as a writer. So I always had this idea of my future as, you know, this unsuccessful novelist, just like living in squalor, surrounded by dogs. And um, happily, um, <laughs> I came to the States, uh, met a cute boy in college who said, you know, well, I'm going to move to LA and write for TV. And I think prior to that, I'd never really thought that was an option. And, you know, I think long, long, long story short, you know, here I am. <laughs> No, I, I, I think it's interesting. You're, you're lucky enough to know exactly what you want. A lot of my listeners are still trying to figure that out. It, how, did you, how did that happen? How, do you, how did you know what you want? You're so privileged. Um, you know, I, it is one of those strange things. Um, and I, and I, do feel, I do feel I'm incredibly lucky that way of knowing exactly what I wanted to do from a very early age. I don't think there really was an option B. Everything I wanted to do was sort of an offshoot from writing, you know, and I think, you know, even thinking about it in much more practical ways, it was about, um, well, perhaps I could be a magazine editor or, you know, and, you know, write novels on the side. I think from, um, again, growing up in Malaysia, even from a young age, I think I was very aware of the fact that I was in um, a very small country in a very sort of, at that time, an unfashionable part of the world. And books really were this tremendous escape. And I think it was, you know, like reading a ton of Enid Blyton and Woodhouse and Irma Bombeck that really sort of took me out of where I was. And again, not that where I was was awful or bad or anything like that, but, you know, the worlds it opened up, to sound completely earnest for a second, um, it, it really was a portal into, you know, all these other existences and histories and um, ways of being that I couldn't even possibly imagine. And I think just the allure of that immediately from a very young age, I, I just could not get away from it. But it feels like a big leap from consuming interesting content to having the ability to produce interesting content. Oh, but, you know, I think 
most kids have that. Like the second they watch a TV show or read something compelling, you know, I feel like it's a very natural childlike instinct to immediately want to create a similar world. Like the, the first thing you do, you know, it's, it's like with language, like with anything, you just start mimicking and you start creating, like, you know, putting in your own construct of what it is you've just consumed. And it's, I don't know, I feel like a lot of young kids have, it and at some point, you know, along the line, it gets drummed out of you. Was there a moment where you sat down and wrote something and you know, handed it to someone? And they went, oh, this is pretty good. And, and you knew that you had something or, or was it more self-recognition of your talent? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. I think the moment really, really, really um, is the first moment when somebody pays you for it. Because, you know, it's not just your mom or your dad or your aunt saying, well, this is this is lovely, you know, what you did. Um, you, you just assume, you know, everybody's just blowing smoke up your ass. But um, I think I was lucky enough um, at a young age, I think I was a teenager. Um, I got a gig as um, an opinion writer for our for a national newspaper. And again, it was just, you know, like idiot musings, like garbage musings of a teenager. And I would just write about my family and <clears throat> I would exaggerate. I would just, you know, spin yarns, but people found it entertaining. And, and I think the moment I got my first paycheck from that of, of writing these articles, I thought, oh, damn, it's not just me. It's not just me who finds it, you know, like endlessly entertaining. There are people out there who are willing to like pay good, hard cash for this. And, um, you know, and people I didn't know started reacting to it um, or sending mail in. And I think that's when I felt that, you know, um, what I had to say, you know, um, that, there, that there really was an audience for it, that, that in a way um, it really connected me with people, that what I was feeling and doing in my own, you know, weird little hole was um, resonating with uh, people um, I had nothing in common with. I've listened to um, lots of things and read lots of things about you um, since uh, you kindly agreed to come on the show. I felt oh, I, should, I should know. I've, I've become, <laughs> I've become a super fan. I must say I've become a super fan of you. And, and I, and I think one of the things I really like about what you've done is the variety of work you've also done. You, you seem to have taken a lot of risks, but, but has, I mean, I, this is a very hard question, but I hope you don't mind me asking. Is, is there one um, thing that you've created that you're most proud of? Oh, wow. Um, most proud of. I think, you, you know, I, I think with me, when, when it comes to things of, you know, what's your favorite, what's, you know, what do you think most, like, it always changes, um, you know, week to week, year to year, based on what I'm working on at that, at the moment. And so for right now, what I'm most proud of is um, a project I've just come off of, which is uh, the, a Disney animated feature, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. And it is, it's a fantasy original um, movie from Disney. And although it's set in this fantasy world, it's inspired by Southeast Asia. And I just come from, you know, like a, many, many, many years of working in Hollywood, you know, writing all, like, you know, you mentioned, you know, all these different genres, but I hadn't really had an opportunity to write about, you know, a world that I was more familiar with. And every time I told a story, I'd have to sort of force it through this prism of somebody else's perspective. And it's, and, you know, luck would have it, you know, off of Crazy Rich Asians and then Raya, suddenly I was, you know, I'm, I've been given this opportunity to tell stories um, directly inspired from the world I grew up in. And so with this Disney, um, with this Disney feature, I cannot wait for the world to see it. I think the, the big, the big thing for me in, in terms of why I feel so proud of it is, you know, Disney as a company has this 
you know, has this impact on the whole world. Um, one of the first movies I'd ever watched was, uh, was Snow White. I was very little and, you know, we had it on a crappy VHS tape and, you know, watched it endlessly. And, you know, my grandmother uh, put, uh, put up plays and I was Snow White. Like, you know, it, it has that kind of an impact. But we're so used to seeing like a certain kind of princess or a certain kind of story being told. And with Raya and the Last Dragon, you know, um, the public hasn't really seen it yet, but, you know, seeing the initial art for who this lead character is, and she's this little like dark brown skinned um, Asian girl running around kicking ass. It's just all my childhood fantasies <laughs> come to life. Is, so, is, yes. Is this character you? Is it, is it you? What? Oh, no, I wish I was her. I think the best thing about the character is she's everything I wish I was when I was eight, everything I wish I was when I was a teenager. Just, you know, brash and fearless. Um, you know, and out there making mistakes and doing the damn thing. But I guess um, that's the I premise. Think, that's the premise of things like Spider Man, in a way, isn't it? I mean, he he, who isn't it? He's completely opposite to Spider Man in many respects, right? He's he's weak. Yes. And, you know, he's intellectual but not necessarily tough. You know, and then suddenly he can change into into Spider Man. Is it is it that type of thing, or is it this straight off? This person's just super strong and super clever and so on. No, you know what? I think that's really a perfect analogy. Um, I, you know, I like to think that, you know, now I'm sort of like, you know, living in my truth and all that. But I think growing up, you know, particularly in Malaysia and um, you, you know, you're always um, a little uncertain of yourself, especially if, you know, if you're a young girl, there are all these things you're supposed to be. And you realize, you know, you're sort of like falling short in so many ways, or at least you think you're falling short. It's all a game in your head. Um, and your, I, and I remember as a child, just like being very cautious and, you know, not really taking a ton of risks, um, you know, and, and I think it was just always this fun escape to be able to write a character that had none of those hangups that could sort of, you know, just boldly venture through life doing whatever the hell it is they felt like doing. Um, and, you know, then that's, and, and I think, you know, having, um, young kids and young girls being able to see someone like that who sort of reflects them, you know, on screen is is tremendous. That's interesting. I, I think it's um, when you're when you're making these these amazing pieces of content. Um, I know it's a collaboration, but when you're building it out, do you have a, a yardstick as to what success would be when when the product's gone into the market? Um, you know, I've given. It, this is just specific to me and um, I'm going to, I'm going to caveat it by saying like, Hey, um, I love, you know, I love money, like, you know, like making money and, you know, and having that be sort of a measure of success. But when it comes to my, my own work, what I've realized is that I can't, um, um, it, it never serves me well to think about, well, you know, this project that I'm developing, you know, is, um, what's ex what exactly is the market for it? What are the chances of it be getting picked up? You know, um, there are very successful writers, you know, who are able to sort of like look at the market, calibrate it, and, you know, sort of churn out a piece of content they feel will do very well for that. And that's not really how I operate. I tend to, um, and I think a part of it is a function of, you know, of the job. It is really easy um, for it to become a grind when you're, especially in television, when you're just grinding through and just breaking story 24 seven, it's very easy for it to just feel like this rock that you're shoving up the hill. And, and I got to a place, um, you know, several times in my career where I, you know, would ask myself like, why am I doing this? You know, it's really not for the paycheck. Um, and where I would get back to is that, you know, I'd have to come from a place of joy. 
so it's a very long way of answering your question. But to me, success is, you know, when you're pursuing a project and it really comes from a place of like pure passion, pure joy. And when it goes out into the marketplace, it's not so much, you know, what necessarily what the box office is, but does it resonate with other people? Can people look at it and, you know, watch it? experience it and sort of you know feel what you were feeling when you were creating it that sense of authenticity was there a voice was there a character that they connected with you know when you're when I was in the when you're in the writer's room or you're with producers and you're just grinding this thing out um, it's so easy to lose perspective of um, you know that these characters you bring to life like to someone else watching it they're flesh and blood and it's so easy to get sort of um, you know lost in the minutia of technical details that um, you know, you want that creative thread to pull through for, for the result on the other end for someone to realize what you did and respond to it. So I guess the, the long, the long the, to summarize it, it's just coming from a place of passion and then really having someone, you know, recognize it for what it is and appreciate it at the end. It's this one true fan concept that's this, you know, the, that one person's really enjoyed it and it's, it's, they've, they've got something from it. I feel like yes. the, the way the way I look at the way your career is going, a lot of your content is also trying to inspire the younger you, and in the, the culture you were in. Uh, oh, I, yes, very much so. Um, you know, and I think um, growing up in a growing up in a third world country really just makes you much more aware of the impact that content has. You know, um, America, and I think to a large part. Um, the United Kingdom, you know, they've just enjoyed being sort of like the center of global culture for so long. And I think if you grow up American or British, you sort of take that for granted. Like, you know, of course, you have all these great authors, all these great you know, composers, um, these great movie makers in a way that if you grew up in a different part of the world, you, you don't have that. Um, but you're still enjoying the fruits of it. You can still, you know, and it does make a huge impact on your own life. Um, I remember, you know, again, growing up like um, I grew up with a ton of television. It was all like the insane 80s TV shows, you know, like Manimal um, and Auto Man. I mean, ridiculous concepts. But it just electrified your imagination. You're just thinking, oh my God, you can, you can do anything. And I think just before I left for college, there was um, this show called uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Um, again, ridiculous heightened, you know, if, you were, if I were to watch it today, I don't know if I would say it holds up, but it just, you know, really brought you in a, into a different world. And, you know, it, it just opens up your horizons in a way that, you know, someone just telling you about it or, you know, um, or reading a doc or watching a documentary about it doesn't quite do. You need it to sort of hit that lizard part of your brain. Mm. And, you know, and it just, it, it just spurs this curiosity about the world. I think this cultural stuff is fascinating. I, I personally lived in Hong Kong for 20 years and lived in England for 20 years. So it's fascinating. I grew up in England watching Hong Kong Fooey. I don't know if you know. You know, so oh, Hong Kong movies are the best. But 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 when I went to Hong Kong, I just expected everyone to know karate. You know, like. <laughs> it, it, but isn't it funny how how those entertainment programs can end up, uh, I guess, illustrating what you think the culture is like? I mean, I, I think about uh, Malaysia, for example. I mean, mm. I, we in the West don't get content from Malaysia, but people in Malaysia get content from America. Right. So that, that's an interesting, I guess, problem in a way, because I think the cultural divide then is there more. Do you, do you think that's true? 
Uh, yes, the, you know, to the first thing you mentioned of, you know, getting all your ideas of a different culture purely from a TV show is problematic. Um, you know, kind of the aliens, the, the, if the aliens were watching all the TV programs of England and they come to actually see us, it would be quite different, right? I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of like, you know, like grumbly snarky, uh, like, you know, dryly hilarious people. Yes. Well, I yeah. don't know. Maybe that's like, yeah, maybe that's actually true. <laughs> what the human race is like, I, I was thinking more like Superman. They come here and say, where's the guy that flies oh. or, you know, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, you have like obsessions with like, you know, men in spandex. Yes. Um, but, you know, with I know, too, I know, you get the sense that, oh, this is what all American cities are like. And so, you know, when I went to school in Boston and my sister ended up going to school in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And again, knowing nothing about Fayetteville, Arkansas, but just thinking, well, all American cities must be like Beverly Hills. And when she got to Fayetteville, was in for a rude, rude shock. Um but I think, you know, especially in this day and age and what's going on, you know, in the streets in America, um, it's all it's all bringing everything sort of full circle. We're all part of a piece, which which is to say, like the the world we depict in television and film is the world, you know, that most the, the rest of the world thinks that it is. They think of America as being a certain way. Um, you know, when my parents first got to the to West, uh, the first time they visited New York, you know, it was this jarring experience of, um, oh, our cab driver's Pakistani. Like, we expected everybody in America to be blonde-haired and blue-eyed, you know. And and it, it's funny in a way, but then it also becomes sad and, and it sort of reinforces the problem of, you know, um, saying to the world, well, only one kind of person gets to be the hero of the story. Only one kind of person, you know, holds any weight um, um, and um, we find their journey compelling. Um, and nobody else even factors into it when, the, you know, when reality couldn't be further from the truth. Um, America was really diverse and very, then it's diverse and very now, but you don't see a lot of those stories on screen. How do you stay motivated to continue to produce content? You, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but, how, you know, the concept of um, you know, being passionate about what you're producing. But I just look at your career. I mean, I actually had to look up Digital Monsters, I actually had to oh go, my I, god no you did I know. it <laughs> I, and, and i i i didn't know it but you know you've you've you produced some you've produced a lot of content let's, let's just say that uh, over a long period of time but how, how, how <laughs> yes. do you stay motivated to to do that well you know it, it depends on where you are in your career i think early on you're just so you know you're so hungry and driven you're just happy to pick up whatever gig you can get including digimon digital monsters which by the way insane um <laughs> i i think you know, we might bring it um, back now on this podcast. I think there'll be a whole load of people searching for that, so we'll have to. Uh, oh dear God! Well, I mean, honestly, it's one of those things where you weren't—we weren't even really writing. Like they had just produced the whole series in Japan; it was already done. The stories were done, but those stories don't translate to an American, you know, to American children because they're doing stories on like you know, oh, the mystic powers of Taoism, and that's what the monsters channeling. You tell that to you know kids in Ohio, and they're like what now and so literally it was one of those strange jobs where you have a whole Japanese cartoon and characters are moving their mouths and you have to really re-script the whole story based on what's going on but to make it sort of fit a different audience um so again early um forays in like you know cross-cultural entertainment um but to your question of you know where where does the motivation um come from let me tell you there are a lot of days where there's zero motivation a lot of motive a lot of days where you're like damn i'm under contract it's a paycheck i have just got to push through and you know and fear is your motivation and that's fine like a lot of times like deadline and a fear of failure is like the one thing that's driving you and that is perfectly okay but i think it you know i in the ideal world um 
it really does come from that place of excitement. And I think it shows, I think, um, you know, like writing is often cast as a really sort of solitary pursuit, but the truth of it is for television, for film, it's incredibly collaborative. You're working with people right off the bat. You're pitching your vision, you're writing it. It goes through so many different formats, um, you know, from outline, from story areas to outlines to, you know, all these millions of drafts. And, you know, in working with all these people, if you have a certain vision and a passion for it, like they feel it. Um, and they, even if they can't see, if they don't have the script in front of them and they can't see all the pieces and they, you know, there are all these holes, they can, they put enough faith in your passion and your faith in it. Um, so I think, you know, when I'm looking at a project, it, it is about that thing of like, um, you know, how can I, how can I personally connect to this? Even if the characters in the world have like nothing to do with me, um, what is it about that experience or that journey that appeals to me now or, you know, appeals to like eight-year-old me? And if I can sort of find that and tap into that, at least, you know, that's a great springboard. Um, one of my uh, favorite writers and comedians is actually my neighbor, uh, Ricky Gervais. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, he um, but he, he, his content and philosophy is interesting. I've, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. So I actually watch all the stuff he talks about, too. And he talks about this concept that writers should own the work. Mm-hmm. And um, how do you feel about that? What's your view on, on that universe? Um, help me uh, define that. Own the work. So, for example, he wrote The Office, right? Yes. And then it did quite well in the in- England, and then he sold the rights to The Office to uh, the US, and they, they did kind of what you just said there about uh, digital monsters. They kind of repurposed it for the American market, you know, with right. American nuances to working in an office. Um, so, um, you know, so so basically, he, he but he's written the content. He's, he, he's the creator and the producer and then eventually he can syndicate it and he, he he's not yes. you know in other words he's not necessarily working for he's working for netflix if you, you know at the end of the day because right. they're the broadcaster for his recent show but in a way he's also independent so he can create the content yes. he can create whatever content he wants and they'll just put it on their platform because it will create lots of views and lots of interest so i i feel like the part of the question i'm asking too is is the dynamic of a writer changing are you getting more power because I, I feel like 20 years ago, maybe when you started your career, in a way you were working for someone else and that you needed them. But now with all these abilities to put stuff out there, is, is that changing? Uh, oh, definitely. I think, you know, on a personal level, but it, it's, also, um, it's also where you are in the industry. So, you know, for people who aren't familiar, television is a writer's medium and film is more of a director and a producer's medium. So in television, the writer is king. So even if you're this shit kicker staff writer in your first year on a TV show, at least when I started, you were on set, you know, you were the voice of the executive producers and you really had a lot of ownership over your own episode. Even if you did not create the show, you know, um, in the ideal world, you know, it's still your voice. It's still a story you pitched. It's still, you know, world and characters you brought to life and you're on set on the ground making it all happen. I've suddenly got this image of all these actors coming up to you uh, saying, please don't kill off my character. <laughs> you, must, you, you must have the power to write them out you know so but like oh no yeah well you know that would be yes the, the showrunner and yes it does create a lot of um a lot of anxiety among the writer cast especially if you're one of those shows shows known for like you know as a game of thrones uh, where you're like oh my yes, oh my, i'm out exactly. i'm out I'm like, oh no that's right massive helicopter crash who made it you know yeah. tune into next season to see and you know you don't know let's keep it a big old secret um and Oh, let me see. What, what, were, what were we going on? I'm oh, sorry. About? That's my fault for interrupting you <laughs> mid-flow. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, but, 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 no, no, no. Oh, that's right. You were talking about ownership, um, writer and, uh, writers and ownership and having agency. 
Um, so again, most of my career, I spent you know 17 years as a television writer, and ownership is everything to us. Um, and I think it works a little differently in the in the British model, but in America, the sh um, the showrunners are the writers. So you've created the show, you've sold it, you oversee all the aspects of it, pre-production, production. You're running the writers' room, and you're on set, you know, and so you hold the whole thing. Um, and yes, and it gets sold and, you know, um, but really it's your show and you're, you're sort of, you know, you live and die by the success of your own show. And, and that's the model I was always used to, even if it wasn't my show necessarily that I was working on. I have run a show before and, um, you know, but I still, and I think when I transitioned over to movies, I carry that same sense of agency. Um, and in movies, it is very different, you know, because it's, it's mostly held by the directors, by the producers, and their writers are viewed as much more expendable. Like you're, you know, a writer comes in, well, that's not working out. Well, I'll toss out that writer, bring in new writers with the idea of like, I'll just keep throwing writers at it until, you know, it works out. And, you know, I have a very writer-centric um, point of view. I think there's a reason why, why we've been in the golden age of television for the last decade or, or so. When you look at the television landscape, you know, the stories are amazing. They're tremendous. They're transporting. The level of writing, the level of storytelling is insane. And, you know, for there to be some discrepancy between, you know, the, the quality of level of storytelling in film and, and television is, you know, horse shit. Um, and, but, you know, again, it's an attitude and it, it's, it's the way, it's a way that the industry has sort of, um, has sort of evolved. But I think the difference with me, you know, coming into, you know, coming to features, I've, you know, as TV writers, you've spent your 10,000 hours just grinding in the trenches, getting story out. You're very collaborative. You're not precious about any ideas, you know, and I think those are all like skill sets that, you know, have sort of worked out well, not just for me, but for a lot of um, writers who've transitioned from television into film. So I think the English model, it's interesting just to understand the difference, but I feel like the English model is you can create the content, own it, and then you sell it as a piece of content. Mm. Um, and, and when you're working on these shows, I guess what I'm asking, I, I mean, I basically see you as an entrepreneur in a way because you're not necessarily fixed with one studio all the time or one project yeah. forever. You're not working for someone. You, you, you do a project with Disney, you complete that project and now you're on to the next project. You know, so it, it's kind of, it's, it's very, it's like having an agency. I've heard you talk about that before, about how your parents said, oh good, maybe you can get a little agency and, you know, but, <laughs> but in, and in a way you became a writer, but in a way you are actually also an agency. You, you, you are a, a product that's, yeah, I think, you know, yourself. I do think a lot of writers are. Um, and there are things in, you know, in, in television and writing where you get these overall deals where you are working for a studio for a number of years. And um, I've had I've had an overall deal before, but I remember finding it just really constricting. Um, you know, I'd like to be able to find a piece of content that I fall in love with and develop it with whatever producers I want, you know. Um, and, and having that freedom versus having, you know, sort of this overseer telling you, well, we're paying you a huge amount of money for the next three years. So, you know, these are, these are your options. Um, but yeah. There, there was a, a bit of controversy around crazy rich Asians and, and you know, the seat, uh, movie number two. Now, I know everyone likes to talk to you about this and it's always, oh, no, this story again. But, but it, it, is, it, is, it is an interesting one because, you know, in this age of equality that, and, and trying to achieve it, you know, I, f I feel like you, you stood up and said, no, that's not right. Um, but did, how has that played out? You know, in reality, has it affected your career in any way? Has, has, I mean, why did they not just pay you the equivalent amount of the other screenwriter? I mean, as soon as you get that highlighted, why don't they just buckle and pay you properly? What? I don't understand. <laughs> well, I think, you know, by the time the story came out, you know, um, it was probably almost a year after, you know, everything had gone down. 
So after the story had come out and everybody was properly shamed, they did come back to me with, you know, well, let's, let's work it out now. And by that time I had already committed to Disney and was fully in love over there. And, you know, it was, it was just far too late. And also I think in, in my mind, um, if it took a public shaming for you to get to this point, you mm-hmm. know, I, I really don't need this. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, the part of, you know, the part of me being willing to have the story come out, you know, I, um, I didn't want to detract from Crazy Rich Asians at all. I, I love the movie. I love John Chu. I love the cast. Um, and it had such, it, you know, it gave such a warm feeling to the community. And the last thing I wanted to do was take away from that feeling. Um, but, you know, again, having, um, you know, been in the industry for as long as I have, um, it, it really was a situation that I, I couldn't deal with. Like the, I know, you know, I know what I bring as a writer. I know that, you know, the crazy rich was what it was because of my experience in television. And I was used to making a certain amount and, you know, um, studios will talk a big game about, you know, promoting inclusion and equity, but when it comes to the lawyers and business affairs, it's an entirely different story. And what you find, what I found, you know, as a recurring practice in the industry was they will always cite things like precedent. Well, you know, you may have worked all this, all these years as a television writer, but really this was only your first movie. And so we're going to offer you like rock bottom minimum because to do anything different would be to set, you know, um, a terrifying precedent for future negotiations. And, you know, and I know that there are always exceptions that are made. um, And if I could not get equity after, um, the first movie was a success. You know, I can't imagine what it's like for other feature writers. Um, and I think, and and the landscape of features is very different from television. It's much more diverse in television. And I do believe that that's why, you know, you've got um, a bigger breadth of, you know, and diversity in terms of stories being told the way you don't in features. And um, when you look at the, just the simple breakdown of numbers, you know, like I think the year Crazy Rich came out, um, you know, something like 85% of like the top 100 grossing movies were written by white guys. And there's a dearth of, you know, female storytellers, um, you know, uh, storytellers who are people of color. And there's a reason for that. And, and again, there's, I don't think there's this big Illuminati of, you know, white guys saying like, let's, you know, let's not tell the stories of brown women anywhere. But, you know, again, it, because features are just, you know, such the, um, um, the territory of, you know, an individual director, he's going to be um, drawn to the kind of story that appeals to him, which chances are it's going to be a character that he looks like and he sounds like he can identify with. He's going to find a writer that can also embody that voice and tell that story. And so just by virtue of that, you're cutting out a lot of women and a lot of people of color. And so when we do have an opportunity to tell our stories, not, you know, to have us not be, you know, compensated equally, um, you know, I felt it was a slap in the face and I, and I knew I would not be able to, to work well under those circumstances. So I walked away. Well, I think that's uh, the right call. And I think your, your um, Wikipedia page needs to get updated soon with uh, best known for the Disney animated feature film, Ryan, the last dragon. I'm going to personally <laughs> update your Wikipedia page with that. Could uh, you? So, yeah, Cause I think, Could I think you? it's time. It's time to move on, uh, and and certainly, I mean, interesting. I just watched uh, Crazy Rich Asians. I think I'm the last person to on the planet to have watched it. So, um, yeah. So maybe <laughs> I'm the full stop for you on, on that. But um, but you know, it's interesting. I, I married a, 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 a Chinese girl, and it, it, watching some of those scenes. I mean, the dumpling scene, for example. I know it gets brought up a lot, but it really resonates with me. That that kind of face off respect thing 
But how did that play out for you in your life? Of your, I mean, I, 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 without prying into your personal life, but you're you're, you're married, I, I assume. Uh, divorced. Divorced. But, okay. um, yes, but no regrets. And yeah, married a white boy from Boston. And yeah, again, I guess my biggest cross cultural experiment. And and so, well, is it is it an experiment that didn't work out? How do you, how do you feel about that whole? Um, I guess. Uh, pitch that even for me when I when I when I got presented to my uh, wife's uh, parents it was very much like mm, is this just a fly-by night thing or is this you know you should just be marrying within your own culture do you, do you think that um, that's still still a thing um, it really it, it is a little bit of a thing it's less of a thing now but um, you know I think the part of that where I felt um, helped with with crazy rich was this um, and by, by the way, I apologize for my circuitous way of, of answering questions. But um, so in Crazy Rich, you know, it's easy with a with a property like that to make it all about oh those insane, crazy, uh, you know, um, alien creatures living on the other side of the world with their ridiculous, outlandish ways. And I remember when I started working on it that it was very important to me that people are laughing and experiencing life with the characters and not just laughing at them. If that makes any sense. Totally. And so you know, it was grounding the Michelle Yeoh character. It can't um, her issue with um, Rachel couldn't be just about money and class because you know that it, it, that's a you know that's about social classes and and you know she Rachel is Chinese so it, she's of the same culture. It wasn't like me when I brought my white boyfriend back to Malaysia and freaked everyone out. <laughs> It's a slightly different dynamic, but, you know, but where my parents fear came from had to be, you know, the sort of the same fear that I was, that we were creating in the character of Michelle Yeo, that it's not just about money and all the superficial trappings. It really is about the fear of a family losing their child. So, you know, and I can't speak to you and your, um, and your wife, but I think with my family, it just wasn't, you know, oh, racism of she's marrying a white boy and why would she do that? Um, he was somebody from a completely different culture in a completely different country. And so for them, they felt, you know, justified that if she marries this, um, this person, she's going to be living somewhere else. Our you know, her children will, won't be completely of our own community and we'll lose a little bit of her and we'll lose a little bit of her future. And, um, and that is a fear I think people from all cultures recognize. Um, so, you know, like, um, putting back into, um, um, you know, my own um, relationship. I think it, it, all, it all worked out well in the end. You know, it's just people dealing with that fear um, of loss. And, you know, and really it's, it's not about, I think, who you, who you choose to marry in the moment. It's how you choose to live your life and whether you continue to sort of nurture those relationships and, you know, like, um, and have both parties sort of like be open to, I am living a different kind of life. I am living a life with a person different from how, from someone you would have picked for me, but we can still be in this together, but we both have to be game. Yes, totally. I mean, it's, it's interesting because there is also, I mean, like you say, every culture has this, even my own mother who um, will probably listen to this podcast and tell me off for saying this, but you know, she said, <laughs> Simon probably won't marry that one, meaning my now wife, um, you know, and, and, and so there's, 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 there's racism in, 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 in the system. It's almost built in. Like that's you know my my mum just assumed because my wife was Chinese that I wouldn't marry her. Of course, I have married her. Now I've had a child, so it's all a bit awkward. You know, when I, when ah. I bring this up with my mother, um, you know, because my my son therefore is also uh, part Chinese. So so there's, it's very interesting, though, how um, I guess the cultural divide is there, and it's not just you know in uh, you know you you bringing a white boy back to Malaysia. It's it's me bringing a Chinese girl to England. Right. So it's, right. it's, um, it, it's kind of a universal thing. That's what I discovered about living in Asia for 20 years and living in Europe for 20 years, that there's racism in both directions. 
you know there's, there's, oh, there's, absolutely and, and, yes. and, and, and maybe racism sometimes is also the wrong word it's misunderstanding you know it's just we're scared of what we don't know right i guess in a way i it, i think it, that's exactly it it is fear of the unknown and when you fear something, it is much easier to like, you know, cast aspersions on it. And, you know, and, you know, I think particularly with like the Hong Kong British relationship or, you know, like, the, you know, and Malaysia was a colony that, um, you know, there is this sort of loaded history that gets packed into the way you see the other. And, you know, sometimes, you know, to make up for, you know, a feeling of either inferiority or whatever, you, you tend to like, you know, you know, ascribe all these like terrible traits, you know, to, um, to the other party. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think again, with everything that's happening on the streets over here, like, I think it's important to remember that we are all one and the same. And I mean that, you know, in the best ways and also the most terrible ways, um, you know, like growing up uh, with, um, in an Asian culture, like they're absolutely as racist as, you know, as anyone else. I think Americans have, you know, taken it to like a brutal, awful extreme, but those, those inclinations are, are in all of us. Totally. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that I'm almost embarrassed to tell the story about my mom being, being racist, but it's also good to recognize it because it's accidentally also probably in me, you know, that, that as much as I, I can recognize that her statement's wrong. There's probably an element of me there that, that's got it just for osmosis, right? The subconscious piece. Uh, sure. I, I think it's, I think it's in all of us. And I, I think what the last few weeks have, you know, really showed a, a lot of Americans is, you know, um, is this need now to sort of look within and, you know, what ways, what ways have we inherited um, and, you know, what, what, um, what systems are we perpetuating? And, you know, with your mother, again, you know, I don't think for a lot of it, it does not come from, from a malignant place. It just comes from a place of a lack of understanding and a lack of familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like interracial marriages are a great way to get past it. And especially once children are involved, usually like everything's forgiven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the differences that's, that's, are out the window. That's what I loved about the writing in, in Crazy Rich Asians, because you're catching the nuance at this point in that, you know, like you're saying, the, the scene where you know she says I'm going to go see her their family in Singapore, and and the mother turns around and says, but they're not the same as us, you know. Yes. They're they're, they're not American, kind of uh, Chinese. There's, there's subcategories of the category, so there's almost like right. racism within the genre of you know the particular uh, w- way you live right now. You know, you might be Chinese, but these are, these people are different. You know, and I, and right, I, and, and I, that's yeah. what's fascinating. And I think the same with rich and poor. There's I'm like, yes, the, these people that live in Singapore, they're Chinese, but you know, they're poor. <laughs> you know, again, <laughs> another another sub subcategory somehow, right? When, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss that there's the, there's there's subcategory racism um, th- that's exactly and i think that really was also for the benefit of you know the western audiences because you don't have to tell the asians like you know we're very aware of you know right, yeah. all the differences uh we you know we feel towards each other but i think it really was a revelation for a lot of like white america and like you know the, like uh, um the west was like oh so you guys have issues with each other well of yeah. course we do you know and I, I, growing up you know there, there are all these things of just like oh you know the the overseas chinese versus the mainland chinese and you know oh those people spit on the streets or these people you know these people don't really know what their true cultural like you know roots are um and you know also um you know speaking to like the diaspora of you know the chinese everywhere in the world and you know that um, yeah, we're we're very distinct little pods of, <laughs> uh, we're we're you know little pods of wherever we ended up. Yeah, and it's um, I mean, I, 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 when I look at your career as well, I feel like this kind of two themes. It's an element of this superhero kind of 
breaking through, breaking the mold of what a ser- superhero looks like. I mean, Xena, Warrior Princess is probably uh, <laughs> one example. But, you know, like I, I, and then I think on the other side about, you know, the other side of your career, I look at the Lethal Weapon series that you've done. I mean, Lethal Weapon, when Ooh. I first read you did Lethal Weapon, I had to research, forgive me, not knowing all of it instantly. Oh, but when I first saw it, I'm like, wow, you're not that old. You can't have done the movie. And then I realized you'd done the series. But a movie to me was always, you know, this, this you know, Mel Gibson character and the, you know, a black and white man working together and getting to know mm-hmm. each other's families. And Well, Mel Gibson didn't have a family in the movie, but the, the concept, their culture were very different, right? The way they lived was very different. And I think that was part of the magic of the original Lethal Weapon series, right? That, that dynamic of understanding each other's oh, yeah. background and culture and how, you know, how Daddy Glover's character would... would to, take care of his family and how protective he was of his daughters and i think that's part of what was the beauty of the original movie right so i i feel yeah. like that 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 dynamic you've always been playing around with that dynamic in in what you've created uh well you know with uh with lethal weapon that was cre- the tv series was created by matt miller and yeah i think you know ex- uh, explicitly that dynamic you talked about was you know the reason that he you know really wanted to give life to the tv series um, I, you know, that one I can't take any credit for at all because I didn't set it up and, you know, um, but yes, it is, it is very alluring, um, dynamic of, you know, with two characters. I mean, the, the, the rule in, um, you know, writing buddy cop shows, you know, is that thing of, um, the contrasts, you know, one person has like zero family and, you know, has a suicide, has a death wish. And the other one has a huge family and, you know, is in fear of, you know, lives in fear of death. And how like both sides, you know, sort of fill a hole in each other of like, you know, there is part of like, um, you know, um, the Murtaugh character that wants to be, you know, live, wants to live balls out and be reckless. But he, you know, he has to fight it and he has to sort of yell at his partner for being that guy. And there's part of the Riggs character, you know, as um, as much of a kamikaze like little warrior he is that sort of longs for companionship and longs for that yearns for that family life, even if you will never explicitly say it, but we feel it for the character. We want it. And that's why we want them both together. That's so true. And that's, I think that's, yeah. That's so true. No, that, that's the dynamic that's magical, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's true in life though, isn't it? It's, it's sometimes the opposites attract that kind of concept. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I don't, I don't know if it's something I've uh, pursued in my work, but you know, it was absolutely there in, you know, in crazy rich. I think, you know, even if we don't explicitly say it for Rachel and this guy, I think, you know, for, for her, again, we didn't make a huge meal out of it, but she's Asian American and that's its own thing. You know, its own experience. You're not like Asians who grew up in Asia that you, with my friends who grew up here, there was this sense of being the other. And I think when she looked at a guy like Nick who grew up in, you know, in Singapore being like the prince among his people, there's a, you know, you're just drawn to that. Somebody who's just so, who is like you, but is so confident and so at home in who he is that, you know, you're drawn to that. And, you know, and I think that there's also a little bit of that in, um, you know, in, in Ryan, the last dragon. And, you know, that one, I can't speak too much of the story, but, you know, with the character of Raya and this um, dragon that she meets, there is also that, you know, that, that yearning. Um, and it always comes across as, you know, um, uh, you're, you know, you, you hate the way the other person is, but you're also really drawn to it. I kind of want it for yourself a little bit. When you start on a project like this, I mean, to me, again, I feel like, I mean, I built 17 companies from scratch. So I always look at this mm. process of building things. But I actually look at every time you create these things, it's like building something from scratch. You don't know if it's going to succeed. Um, you've done it a few times. I've got more than a few times. You kind of know what's involved, but you never know. I mean, when, when, you're, when you're building these, um, uh, these, these platforms out, do you see it as like 
something that you know that you when you're building it you know it's going to be successful or do you just feel it as you're developing it or is it from day one when you pitch it you know it's going to be successful how what goes through your mind Oh, good God. You know, I think all writers feel this way, which is it doesn't matter how big a success you just came up. When you start a new project, you are starting from zero. Because, yeah, absolute zero, because you don't know. And we've all been through it enough where we know like there have been amazing concepts, amazing scripts where bidding wars have happened. And then when it gets produced and it gets made, it turns out to be this like dump on a log that nobody wants to spend two cents to go see and you know because there's so many things it's such a collaboration so many things could go wrong along the way so even when you pitch it and you're feeling in your bones at the back of your head you know at any moment at any turn this whole thing could go off the rails and so you know i think this is this is an industry where like people with like control issues um and you know people are ocd like thrive because you're constantly obsessing on all the details you know, especially if you're, you know, in television and you, or you, you're a producer, whether it's the casting, the script, like every little thing down to like, you know, set, um, um, set design and, you know, actor choices, you know, just fully cognizant of the fact that, you know, everything could hinge on, on what, on a couple of like key decisions for you know, how an actor comes across, how a whole thing. And so much of it is alchemy too, at the end, like you don't know, like you, you know, you created these characters, these actors have sort of brought it to life, but who knows, like on the day of they're in the wrong outfit in the wrong thing, they're not feeling it. And if they're not feeling it, you know, then, you know, the viewer isn't feeling it. So, you know, I, I really, you know, similar to your experience of like starting, um, you know, different country, uh, different companies, that feeling of like, yes, this is a ho- another opportunity for success or total devastating, humiliating failure. Do, do you do you have fear like that? Do you, I mean, even now it's made, it's coming out. I mean, mm. you, when is it released, by the way? When, when can we? Oh, it? it was supposed to be released in uh, November, but because of the pandemic and everything now, it's slated to be released in uh, March. Why would you not get it out right now? Disney's hot. My whole crew, we were all talking about this before the broadcast today about how everyone's downloaded Disney Plus because of the lockdown. And, you know, there's not enough content at the moment because they want to watch more stuff. So, um, yes. You know, why, why would um, they delay I, it? Oh, you'll have to ask like the, the masters of the universe, like you know, <laughs> good, running good the PR Disney thing. Yeah. But, you know, but they did have a lot of movies that were slated to come out right. um, that they have released on Disney Plus. And so, you know, they're just hoping to get back to the box office, I'm sure. But I mean, do you, I mean, you must be already planning your next project or, or next thing, I guess. Or, or yes. Is it take, oh, you are. Okay. Are you allowed to talk about that or you're not? Oh, oh yeah, you know, a, a little. Um, so I think it was a reaction of like being on Disney um, for a while because I, I think I was on it for almost two years. Um, but while, um, I was on it just for, just for shits and giggles, um, my, me and my two friends wrote this completely inappropriate, raunchy, nasty, um, comedy about, um, four girls, like, you know, going to Asia and it's, um, just between us. It's, I think, you know, the premise of it was, um, the lead character was an Asian American adoptee in middle America with like, you know, uh, corn fed all American Midwestern parents and she's going to Asia to look for her birth mother. But really among us, when we talked about it, it was, you know, a girl's going to Asia and search for meaning, identity and dick. You can. Yeah. We don't have any. (laughs) Spotify might censor it, but we definitely don't. We'll just assume that's a character's name. Um, Yes. 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 Perfectly fine then. Dick the character. um, Yeah. In Asia. There you go. Mm -hmm. That's right. His name of her birth father. (laughs) That's how we'll get it through the censors. Yeah, yeah. Richard, some people call him Richard, but That's yes. Right. Anyway, yeah. Off, off, so off to Asia they are to to find themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we um, wrote uh, we wrote a fun movie, um, you know, attached ourselves as producers because, again, we're all television writers and it's that feeling of wanting agency over our work. Um, and um, and that's why we wrote it on spec instead of instead of pitching it around town and having someone pay you to write it, that we just wrote it on our um, on our own so that we knew, like, this is the story we wanted to tell. This is the movie we wanted to produce. And we sold it. We um, we partnered with Point Grey, which is Seth Rogen's company, and we sold it to Lionsgate. Um, you know, and um, the the pandemic sort of thrown a wrench into things, but you know, um, hopefully it all it all comes out in the wash at the end. Is that is that a normal sequence? Is, is that something you've done before? You produce something and sell it like that, or is that a new new route? That's a new. Um, I think you know a lot of writers. Well, I don't. I wouldn't say a lot of writers. Some writers do that where they just write something entirely on spec, whether it's a TV show or a movie. Um, it doesn't happen as often because it is a huge investment of your own time. And there's no guarantee that you're going to be paid for it versus, you know, um, being able to go out, you know, being, pitching something and having someone pay you for it. But the issue is that, and I'm sure it's the same in business, which is the moment you, um, you know, the moment somebody else is financially invested in it or is, you know, um, it, it is the outsized financial partner in something, they have control over what it is you do. So, you know, and I'm fine um, partnering with people. I, I'm, um, I'm a big fan of collaboration, but I think in the nascent part of the process, when you're just trying to find out what it is you're excited about, um, sometimes it's important to just do it on your own. Um, you know, and I think that's what me and my uh, co-writers felt that we just wanted to to write this and be free to, exp- to go down all kinds of all all kinds of like wrong roads, go down all kinds of bad paths just because we can, um, just to see where it takes us. And you know, and I'm I'm glad we did it. Well, I'm excited. Is it got a title yet? Can we? Uh, not, yet. not yet. Okay. Well, again, I will update the uh, description as soon as we're allowed to with exactly what this is all about. But I'm excited to watch it. I love anything that has um, background in Asia because I, I'm, I'm in London now, so I'm seriously missing. When I saw uh, Crazy Rich Asians, sorry to keep jumping back to that, but I just, I just couldn't stop thinking about dumplings and skylines, ah. you know. So, um, yeah, keep, keep doing stuff in Asia, please. Do, love it. I, I think it's um, – there's a lot of my listeners that I know, uh, for example, have stories they want to tell – and they want to write them. And, and I think a lot of people would dream of being able to write a piece of content that gets picked up uh, by Lionsgate um, and Seth Rogen. I think that would be a lot of people's absolute dream. They've got content out there. Is there an easy route to do this? Or is it really still about who you know? Um, there is no easy route to do this. And to be absolutely blunt, it is an ass bleeding to, you know, in the most pleasant terms. I think I also Spotify will not bleed that out if we try and reference it back to Mr. Arse Bleeding. What are the Mr. Men? Yeah, he's a new one. You've not... I'm so sorry. Mr. Bump's best mate. Pot- but I've got such a potty mouth. It's just, you know... No, I don't I, I think, I'm, I think I'm, people I'm just a feral beast. Honesty. That's what I like. Um, it, it, listen, it, it's difficult. It, it really is. But there, I think now there are more avenues than ever for outsiders to, to break in. And a lot of the ways are these um, writing fellowships that are, um, you know, um, sponsored by all the major studios, you know, like, like CBS has one, Universal has one, Disney has one. There are all these writing fellowships where you can write material and submit it in and then, you know, get into the fellowships, work with professionals to really get your material up to snuff to help you as a person understand how to present yourself at meetings, how to work um, with others, you know, to familiarize yourself with the process, which can seem really opaque if you're coming in from the outside. Um, the, and I think that was the second part of your question, you, you know, in terms, oh, that's right, who you know. There, there, there is a thing of who, you know, 
um, of um, being able to network and being able to get an in. But to me, that's, you know, maybe 10 or 20 percent of, of the effort. I think when I was breaking in, there was this attitude of, oh, it's all who you know, you know, it's whose uncle can get you an internship and who can get you into this writer's room as a PA. Um, but that having an opportunity, um, you know, has nothing to do with whether you yourself are ready for that opportunity and whether you have the work to back it up. Um, at the end of the day for a writer, it, comes all, it all comes down to your sample. And, um, you know, for your listeners who want to tell their stories, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, you know, are you willing to put in the work to tell it? And, you know, if you are, then, you know, I think the first step is, you know, doing, um, well, two things, getting your ass in the chair and writing, writing nonstop, like, don't be too precious about it. There are a lot of, um, you know, early writers or would-be writers who are sort of holed up in a corner of their room, you know, um, writing outlines, like endless outlines for the book or the script that will one day be, but just has, you know, it has to be perfect. Your first script's not going to be perfect. Your first script is going to be a dumpster fire. Like I'm, uh, you know, I, I don't know how else to say this. Um, there, there are, you know, it's the exception rather than the rule if you come up with, the, you know, your first script and it's, you know, and it's magic and someone says, you know, let's shoot that. Um, even with experienced, amazing writers, you know, unless you're Quentin Tarantino, like that just doesn't happen. Um, and so, you know, it's putting in a lot of work there. And the good news is in this day and age, between YouTube, the online communities, you know, and all the resources out there. And you have a lot of writers who are, you know, um, I, feel, I feel like as a tribe, we're a very giving people. And so we're always out there trying to, you know, share and teach and, um, and learn. Um, there are all these um, online seminars, um, you know, uh, Q&As um, on Instagram, on Facebook with writers. I would, you know, absorb as much as you possibly can. Watch, you know, wh whatever it is you're trying to write. If it's a TV show, it's a film, write, um, watch all the TV shows and movies that are as close to the genre you're trying to write. Study it as an art form. Break it down, you know, of like, um, break down the craft. Um, because writing, I really do feel it's this perfect combination of like the creative and craft. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's working on both parts of it and, you know, really it, it's, it's just hours and hours of writing and just honing your craft. And then, you know, when you're ready, um, or and even before you're ready, just making, getting it into the hands of the right people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm interested in your, um, um, belief around things like luck. So I, mm -hmm. I, I have a whole theory and the reason I call the podcast, the good luck club podcast is because I don't think luck is talked about enough in people's process of being successful. And so my, my premise is that there's actually in the dictionary only one definition of luck, which is this random luck. And let's call it where you're born, for example. You can't really control where you're born. Um, but then there's a second piece of luck uh, that I think is more uh, you can influence it. and You can control it with um, lots of different elements. I think there's actually three elements that make you uh, more lucky. But I'm interested in your view. I mean, do you feel that you were lucky in your career or uh, that luck isn't really a part of it? How do you feel about the concept of luck? Oh, it's a big question. Um, I, I've always felt like an incredibly lucky individual, um, you know, and I don't, I'm not particularly religious or spiritual in that way, um, you know, maybe when I was younger, but always just felt that, um, you know, I, I think there's, you know, there's providence, there's, there's things of like where you're born and, you know, and again, it's, I, I, I don't know if, it's strange, but I would say I was lucky to be born in Kuala Lumpur and I was lucky to be born an outsider. I was lucky to be born a woman. I think like all those different things, you know, and in a way being an outsider to sort of like global mainstream culture did give me a unique insight into that. Um, and I, I think I've gotten to the place in my life where I don't really, I believe in good luck and I don't really believe in bad luck. I, you know, um, an example would be, 
um, when I was a TV writer, um, it used to be that there was staffing season because everything was in network um, one hour on a network one hour schedule. And there was only a finite amount of time where all the TV writers would take all the meetings um, to get on your next big show. And I'd always felt, you know, like I had, you know, I, um, I was lucky. I was an immigrant. I was outsider, but I always staffed year after year, except for this one year where I was pregnant. And it was one of those things where like I was a million months pregnant. There's no hiding that. And, you know, even though it's not legal for someone to not hire you because you're pregnant, no one's hiring, you know, the eight month pregnant lady because it's going to take up a huge part of your writer's budget. So, you know, you could say like, oh, well, it's bad luck. Like I couldn't time my pregnancy out in time. I had zero control out of it. I was so angry. But it also turned out to be, you know, my best bit of luck, which is I met a showrunner, um, Liz Tiglar, and we hit it off, you know, right away. And there was a love connection. And um, because of my pregnancy, you know, her show ended up being a mid-season. So it started a little bit later. Um, and because, you know, I couldn't staff on any other show that would have perhaps hired me had I not been pregnant, I really found the showrunner who, you know, um, you know, whose sensibilities and mind like matched so beautifully. And that ended up being one of those biggest breaks, one of my biggest breaks um, as a writer, because I got onto her show. I was also so, you know, thankful and grateful that, you know, she saw the writer in me past, you know, my big, huge bump and, um, you know, really gave it my all. And that was my first experience, you know, running a writer's room. And, and I think had it not been for the bit of bad luck, you know, I wouldn't have run into the bit of good luck. And I found, you know, a similar pattern with my whole career. Anytime something has come up where I didn't get a job, I thought was going to be the end all be all of my career, something else turned up. And, you know, half of it was probably because I was so driven or angry at the thing that had preceded it. But, you know, I, I, I firmly believe like, especially for, for, um, you know, for, for writers that there really is no one big thing that is going to make or break you. And, you know, more often than not, it's the, it's the opportunities you miss that is going to give you the motivation to really make the next thing take off. I think that's such good piece of insight there that I think so many people it's about perspective isn't it that's yes. primarily part of it and I had I've had in my 17 business I've, I've done I've only ever been involved in one that involves talented writers we actually made a comic book part of the concept was and now I feel like I'm pitching it to you but what if Superman landed in India you know what what would that whole thing how would it love play? it yeah and, done yeah sold. done sold yeah and uh, and then we but we then brought this whole comic book out which is basically superheroes in India that then you know come out and tell their story. Anyway, it, um, I, I invested heavily in it. Hired a brilliant team of writers. Ben Hall, big shout out to him. He was the writer on it, and we got um, invited by. This is ten years ago, so I'm even scared to say his name now. But ten years ago, Harvey Weinstein um, was interested in buying it, and at the ah. time we thought this was great, you know. And then, yes. long story short, the uh, deal fell apart. And how glad am I today that that deal fell apart? I, I would not want to have my name associated with that person in any way, right? So that dude, kind of dodged dude, a bullet, yeah. but, not, but not at the time, in fairness, not at the time. You know, I didn't know anything. As many people didn't know anything about what he was up to. And you just think this, this guy, you know, he's the guy that turns your, your comic book into a movie. He's the guy that will get us an Oscar for our comic book concept, you know, like this is, this is yeah. the person to deal with. And so, but we felt very unlucky at the time that didn't, go, didn't go ahead because the business then... F fell over you know it, it, it didn't you know work. what you were just you were ahead of your time like yes, 10 years maybe. ago yes indian superheroes might have been a harder sell and now 
now with all these different platforms and this thirst for content, you know, get out there, get right, out. You've I, got I, I'm going to send you a copy now. I feel like I feel like I might have uh, yeah. got someone on side in 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 the, in the US. Uh, yeah, there you go. So it fell apart of Harvey Weinstein, but I make the deal with you. But to your point, which I think is really good, that you know, people out there. That, I had someone email me yesterday, and I get hundreds of emails from people around this sort of thing, and they say, you know, I've, I have nothing but bad luck. And I, and, I, and I say, you know, this whole Buddha saying, which is everyone's going to have 10,000 hours of good luck and 10,000 hours of bad luck, you know, and, 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 and I think you can actually have 20,000 hours of luck if your perspective on it is right. So it's, um, it's true what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, I mean, I always like to end the podcast with a lighthearted question. Um, and I, I think it's lighthearted, but people have accused me of it being quite serious uh, recently. But if you went back to your younger self and, and gave some mm -hmm. advice, maybe that, you know, before you left Malaysia, the 18-year-old uh, you, you know, like what, what would the advice be? Don't be afraid of anything. And it's all bullshit. It's <laughs> I can't see you being afraid at that point anyway. I can't imagine... Can't see you being afraid. Were you afraid? You know, I I think back on this a lot. There was the night before I left for the states, and you know, your family comes over, your friends come over. It's a big weepy thing, and then everybody goes home. And I couldn't sleep all night, and I was just pacing up and down my garden, like the family's garden. You know, looking up into the night sky, going just like it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. It's all too much. It's like you know, my whole life, the whole life I've been waiting for. Like it's gonna happen. I'm gonna take a plane and go to it tomorrow i was like don't fuck it up just go just go <laughs> but you it's thought you were flying out. into 90210 uh, didn't you i mean that's um yes it, it was 90210 but then you, you're excited to fly into 90210 but the back of your head you know you don't belong in that world you don't have those cars you're not some cute white girl with a tight ass like how's it going to work out for you but yeah. <laughs> oh, your insights are great. Well, um, I kind of want to say if your life was a TV show or movie, what would the title be? I don't know if that's something <laughs> you want to write. And maybe that's that, that, maybe that's your next project after your recent no. project. Uh, oh, God. The title. The title would be The Angry Glutton. And I don't think I could sell that to Netflix. <laughs> I don't know. My, my son's reading Gruffalo at the moment. And that seems to be quite popular. Uh, you know, Gruffalo, like, we're, yeah. Yeah, we're going to need an Asian version of Gruffalo. I, I know, maybe, yeah. Just, yeah. maybe there's a mashup there. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's how you know you've like achieved true equity when you've got like an Asian girl like just being a sort of completely self-destructive, like indulgent bacchanalian mess. Awesome. Well, if you if you do uh, write that TV show or movie or write that book, I will buy it and I will watch it. So thank you so much, Adele. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thank you for giving your time. And uh, I hope to have you back on the podcast one day. Maybe we can talk about your new show when it's out and uh, discuss, discuss the creative process and how it all played out so people can understand if they're ever interested in... Uh, being a screenwriter yeah. and a creator. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you've chosen us. We, of course, feel lucky. If you want to hear more, please go to thegoodluckpod.com or go to any of our social media pages and share with us your views, your insights and any way that we can improve what we're doing to make it a better experience for you. We wish you the best of luck.